Let's try to get this in one take, guys. One take. We'll do this in one take. We're going to do this in one take. One take. Okay. Let's do this. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? We are here uh, on a seminal night. I think a a a a truly exciting evening because company Sam works for is no longer company Sam works for. That's true, ladies and gentlemen. I this is my first Baltimore on's podcast as a technically unemployed person. No, 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 no. What Sam meant to say this is his first podcast as a full time radio producer. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> uh, I have. Uh, <laughs> This is kind of an interesting thing to announce because uh, it sets up a set of expectations that I'm not entirely sure I'm comfortable (laughs) with. But I have quit my job, folks, to... I had a full-time job as an administrative business professional for the last uh, many, many years. And I have decided to quit that job to focus more on creative endeavors such as this one, which means, hopefully, if I am doing things correctly, you should see a slight uptick in uh, quality around these parts. The first, uh, maybe not quality necessarily, because how could you get better than the last 122 episodes of Baltimoreans? <laughs> but maybe consistency. Um, uh, I'm going to be able to focus more on things like booking guests, uh, writing blog posts. I put up the first one of those today, which you can check out at bemorons.com. And Click you on will blog. find regularly on Tuesdays and Thursdays, at least for the time being. That's right. So, yeah, this is, uh, this is the first night of my recording as a as a person in this new phase of life and fittingly we We've have not prepared a nothing <laughs> for the show tonight <laughs> but you know it's it's important to, it's important to gear into these things you don't want to rush yes so uh look for look for a lot of that in the weeks to come but first let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen on the program here this evening Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 123 of Baltimoreans, the show that, like Masson broadcaster Gary Thorne, is hungry. You can find some place that has the hook caught black grouper. Buy it. It is so good. <laughs> exactly what I was thinking. Oh, had that black grouper last night. One of the best meals in a long time. Here's Maddie. We've got a fantastic show on tap for you tonight, folks. Recently, we had the opportunity to sit down with Sarah Estrella, a community organizer, scholar, and ardent fan of the Pawtucket Red Sox, to talk about the implications of the imminent closing of McCoy Stadium, where the Paw Sox play. As Sarah explains, it'll be a tough blow for the community that has relied on the comfort and affordability of its access to ballgames there for the last 69 years. We've also got an essay from contributor Matt Freed, who reflects on the legacy of Cliff Lee for his beloved Philadelphia Phillies. Of course, no episode of Baltimoreans would be complete without our most popular recurring segment, the Ryan Webb Franchise Report. Now, alert listeners will, of course, recall Alan's declaration during our recent nickname episode that we were unlikely to ever mention the man we used to call the auditor again, at least until we trotted his name out for a franchise report around the year 2018. Since then, however, it's become clearer than ever that the American League East is Dan Duquette's world and that the rest of us are just pawns in his game. Recall, friends, that when we originally signed Ryan Webb to a two-year contract during the 2013 offseason, 
It seemed like he was going to be our only significant acquisition of that entire winter. Do you remember the articles in which it was suggested that Webb might serve as our closer? That he might even be so versatile as to make a few spot starts over the course of the season? Do you remember, Baltimoreans, that you, as did all of us, actually talked yourself into believing both of those things? And where are we now? Zach Britton, who all of us were ready to shoot into the sun after 2013, is one of the most reliable closers in baseball. Jimmy Paredes, who was acquired for those ever-vague cash considerations in a mostly unheralded transaction last July, currently sports an OPS higher than that of Mike Trout, and Ryan Webb is currently perusing the Petunia section at his local Kroger supermarket, hoping he gets the opportunity to tow the rubber on a big league mound at all in 2015. This game makes zero sense, people. Ryan Webb went from cog to footnote in a matter of months, and we barely noticed. Of all the roustabouts and zeros we've commemorated via franchise report here on Baltimoreans, it seems a shame to leave Ryan Webb, who did make some meaningful contributions to 2014's division championship squad, to languish in history's botanical isle of anonymity. And so we pause this week to remember him fondly and we've tentatively transferred his slot in the hypothetical 2018 franchise report to Wesley Wright. Roustabouts and zeros, by the way, are two words we would never use to describe the hosts of our fine sister-wife podcasts on the Baltimore Sports Report Network, of which we're a proud member. Now folks, as crazy as things get in the world of Orioles baseball, there are some constants upon which you can rely. Buck Showalter will always nervously fidget with a baseball in the dugout during close games when the O's are losing. Chris Davis will always have an absurdly large plug of tobacco in his cheek for his first at-bat of the game, which may in fact be so enormous as to impair his vision, thereby explaining his inability to pick up the spin on curveballs. And every episode of Baltimoreans, folks, begins with a few words from my esteemed co-host, Alan Smith. A few words indeed, Sam. Here on episode 123... I want to pause and remark this is the first sequentially numbered episode since number 98 and the last until number 234, so just watch that sail by. It's also the address of one of the most important buildings in American culture, 123 Sesame Street. Because the significance of this address is on par, I think, with such luminaries as 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, 333 West Camden Street, and 221B Baker Street as addresses that mean something to us in our, in our cultural moment. And I want to pause and reflect on how wonderful 123 Sesame Street has been for entire multiple generations, not only of, of young, entrepreneuring learners, but also of baseball fans. Now, you don't necessarily think of Sesame Street being directly tied to baseball, but as every Baltimore fan knows, we've recently had a series of games uh, that didn't happen, and we've had a series of off days, and it was in these off days and games that didn't happen where we wanted something to distract ourselves. So I want you all to sit and listen to a beautiful moment from 123 Sesame Street brought to you by our friends Bert and Ernie, who I think put a lovely spin on what it means to play fantasy baseball. Ernie, Ernie, what's the matter? Oh, Ernie. Bert, Bert, it's terrible, what, what, Bert. What's terrible, Ernie? Oh, I what? wanted to play baseball today and yeah? look outside. It's raining outside, Bert. Oh, that's it, yeah. 
Well, it's not so bad. It's not so bad, Bert. Yes, it is, Bert. Hey, hey, it's hey. very bad. Okay, okay. Now, calm oh, down, so Ernie. Calm down. Hey, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you just imagine you're outside playing baseball? Imagine? Sure. Oh. Imagination is sometimes as good as the real thing, Ernie. Oh, okay, Bert. I'll try it. Good. Gee, let's see now. I'll imagine that I'm out at the old ballpark. The fans are cheering. The umpire yells, Play ball! And I step up to the plate. The pitcher winds up, and I swing. Oh, it's a fantastic hit. Look at the baseball go. It's going up over the roof. It's still going up, up, up into the sky, through the clouds. And now it's coming down. Down, down, down it comes and it lands in the ocean. Oh, no. Hey, Ernie, Ernie, it, it stopped raining now. You can go out and play baseball. Oh, no, I can't, Bert. Why not? The baseball's at the bottom of the ocean, Bert. There you have it, folks. Next time the Orioles don't play ball, I want you to stop, and I want you to imagine a game in the same way that Ernie has imagined that game. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Ryan Webb Franchise Report, where each week we take the three most pressing news items from Birdland and beyond and assign them a ranking ranging from strikeout to home run. First up this week, Chris Davis, who entering play tonight had struck out 35 times. Now, our dear friend Jim Hunter, who has come in for, I would say, more than his fair share of criticism on this program, <laughs> because he seems to be a, a kind man, and as we have pointed out many times, does a very decent job on the radio, but is a terrible television broadcaster, <laughs> whose position should be vacated in favor of one of us. Anyway, um, in the recent series against the Rays of Tampa Bay, he took great, great pleasure in glorifying the fact that Stephen Souza Jr., had struck out uh, entering play in Game 2, I believe it was 37 times, and how that was a pretty shameful number that was leading the American leave, League. Well, just a couple of whiffs behind him <laughs> is our dearly beloved crush, the Bible oh, Belter, Davis. first baseman. Who, more so than in any season in recent memory, I would say, is flailing helplessly up there at the plate, and is on pace for something in the neighborhood of 739 strikeouts. And you would say he's categorically looking more lost than he was last year? Well, what ranking would you give his performance so far this year, Smith? Because I don't want to tip my hand, but yes, I do think that the situation is getting worse and not better. Um, I would give Chris Davis's performance so far this year a towering blast to Utah Street that is about six feet wide of the foul ball pole. <laughs> Which okay. is to say that I think he's closer <laughs> than many of us are giving him credit for. I was going to say, I detect a hint of optimism. But he's still not there. Because <laughs> it is just outside the pole, right? I mean, it doesn't count. It's just a strike. But I have in my observations of him... It feels as though he does not look as lost to me as I remember in the depths of the 2014 season when um, it was almost 
painful watching him swing, not only because it was pretty clear he was in pain with his oblique, but also because there was just no chance that he was going to put any contact on the ball at all. Now I feel like um, he's wandering into a few more home runs. I think he's hitting in the, like, 240 range. He's uh, he's up to uh, 260, 270. Okay, okay. And and it seems like every so often he's going against the shift and you know he's doing he's doing a few more things positively than previous iterations of of Chris Davis. So, yeah, I I think it's movement in the right direction um and I hope that a couple more of them bend their way inside the 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 pole. I guess the the concern I have is that I feel like to me, whereas in past years when he would come up to the plate and you, we would have this concern that you referenced that he was going to be an automatic out, it was because they were going to throw him the breaking ball down and in or six inches in front of home plate uh, or up and away, and it was clear that he was going to swing. Couldn't and find it. Instantly regret that he had started his swing uh, but not Do be able weird, to like, hold it up. bend over exactly. flail thing. And it doesn't seem like he's swinging and missing at as many of those pitches this year. What's concerning to me is that I feel like he's missing a lot of grooved 2-1 and one fastballs or grooved 2-0 and oh fastballs. Or in some cases, in the Tampa Bay series, he swung away on 3-0, and oh, which at first I was excited that he had worked the count to 3-0, and oh, but then he would get something right down the middle, apparently have the green light, and swing right under the pitch. So that's concerning to me yeah the notion that it's not that his plate judgment is worsening it's that his ability to make contact he's not catching up to the what used to be the gimmies exactly Hmm. so that that's the reason that that i'm a little bit concerned and so what i would like to do in this segment is to once again bang the trade chris davis while we still can drum so is that your ranking trade (laughs) (laughs) sell 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 where's the jim kramer button (laughs) yeah i'm gonna go ahead and give it one one jim kramer toxic asset (laughs) because i think harsh i think we're in a i think we're in a very very delicate situation with chris davis where oh yes it's clear that he still has power when he makes contact but his ability to make contact is headed in the wrong direction Mm. and his defense is still fine. He's still young. He's still at a place where we can convince a team like, say, the Phillies or the Brewers, a team that's rebuilding, that they ought to give us, I don't know, a Matt Garza in the case of the Brewers, a Cole Hamels in the case of the Phillies if we if we package in some other guys with them, maybe, uh, maybe a little Freddie Freeman action in the case of the Braves. The Braves are too smart to take. Chris Davis. So that's a bad example. But well, the Braves did just spend a lot of money on Nick Marcakis. Who I did notice is off to a very nice start, hitting yes. about 290 yes. with zero home runs. <laughs> yes, he's hitting 290 with lots of singles. <laughs> it's almost like that's not worth $11 million a year. Anyway. Not to you, maybe. <laughs> I think if we all look ourselves in the mirror after a strong cup of coffee and <laughs> you know maybe a shot of wheatgrass, it's clear that Chris Davis is not worth a long-term commitment, but it's also clear that his bat has enough pop in it that a team that's underpowered, which is not a problem that we have, will be willing to make a deal with us. And I'm just going to run you real quick through the assumed starting lineup if Chris Davis gets shipped out of town tomorrow. That seems to me to be Deaza, maybe Machado in the two-hole, Adam Jones in the three, 
you're saying that Dreamcoat goes for? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is where we come to the second part <laughs> of okay. the Jim Cramer to- toxic asset answer, uh-huh. which is, uh-huh. I bet you're starting to think to yourself that Matt Wieters is a toxic asset. No, he's not. <laughs> we give him the Joe Maurer treatment. We move Matt Wieters to first base. Oh. Because it's clear now that Caleb Joseph, well, I don't think we're kidding ourselves. Caleb Joseph is not an elite major league hitter, but Caleb Joseph's bat can play in the major leagues. Yeah. And the thing is- Can his glove? The offensive standard of uh, for catchers is much lower than it is for any other position. Sure. Caleb Joseph is, of course, overperforming right now, but even if he sustained the production level that he had last year, as long as we're getting what we need from every other slot in the lineup, that's not going to kill us. Defensively, uh, opposing teams still do not run on us disproportionately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He caught up all of the pitchers seem to love throwing to him. He handled the majority, the vast majority of the innings last season, and particularly down the stretch when our pitching was the strongest. So I think it's clear that Caleb Joseph can be our number one. I don't love Ryan Lavarnway as no. a backup. No, no, he needs to go. But we do have uh, <laughs> pride of Pigtown. Get him back up here. Yeah, but we do have a great deal of other catchers in this system. Yes. I heard that Gerald Saltalamacchia is now available. A- indeed, and for uh, a pittance. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when you look at Weeders, particularly last year, even when he had the in- the injury, he was still hitting just fine. Yeah. So it's just the catching. His, his inability to throw to, th- to second base. Precisely. So I think Matt Weeders obviously has the athleticism to play first base. Matt Weeders is a switch hitter, and uh, while... He is also a very frustrating uh, offensive presence in our lineup. He's much more consistent than Chris Davis, and he doesn't strike out all the time. Mm-hmm. I can think of three or four situations off the top of my head this year where all we needed from Chris Davis was a sack fly, and instead we got a strikeout. Mm-hmm. I feel much more confident in Matt Weider's ability to put the ball in the air in a situation hitter. like that. So that's my plan Okay. Okay. for how to resolve this situation. I think I think that that's a uh, I think it's it's a reasonable plan. Um, I would be very curious to see what the rest of the major leagues thinks Chris Davis is worth. At some point, though, um, the the theory that this team has a lot of pop, right, and that we have a, a, a an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the home run ball, is a good theory until you've traded on that theory too many times. And I feel like so Nelson Cruz is gone, and we somehow have made up the offense and then Matt Wieters is gone and somehow we've made up the offense. And I think if you, at some point that gravy train runs out, right? At some point you can't keep adding by subtracting. And at some point a subtraction starts to hurt us. Particularly Um, because we don't uh, have any real power hitting prospects in the farm system at the moment. At all. That's a situation where we, we have uh, I believe the technical term is a dearth. (laughs) A sizable dearth. A sizable dearth. Uh, there's nobody out there. I don't know what on dearth we're going to do about it. <laughs> oh, no. But I think this also gets us nicely into our second issue Indeed on, it does. on today's franchise report, which is the injury bug seems to have bitten the previously almost blessed Orioles in in the past couple of years, bitten us pretty hard so far. Um it it seems like in the last 18 months, most of your regular Orioles and some of your most exciting prospects 
have been on the shelf for a long period of time. So first of all, Sam, how would you rank the current propensity for the Orioles to be oft injured, and how worried about it are you for the 2015 season? I'm going to give this one outbreak of bedbugs in Alan Smith's apartment. (laughs) Which is to say, and I'm sorry to... (laughs) Too soon. <laughs> I'm sorry to... Uh, nearly, don't worry, everybody. a year ago, still too soon. And, okay. Uh, the timeline. The timeline's okay. Uh, I guess what I mean to say is bedbugs are a very unsettling presence. Sure as fuck are. They, they feel like an invasion of your most intimate, comfortable place in your home. Yes. The place where you're they supposed are a, to feel... They are a violation. ...safe and good. However, their bites are not toxic. True. They're, it, being bitten by them is not going to kill you. Nope. It's going to annoy the bejesus out of you. <laughs> I think when you look at the situation in Texas, for example, where their pitching staff has been absolutely decimated. They have a pitching staff? Within... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, not one, you know, that you'd want to... Not that you're going to write home about. You know, it, that'd be a waste of a postage stamp. <laughs> and postage prices are at an not, all-time not low cheap. in terms of irrelevance. Um, you know, that's a situation where injuries really, I think, have created a situation that's going to be tough for them to overcome. For us, because of the Dan Duquette doctrine that has last year created the Steve Pierce phenomenon, that this year seems to, seems to have created the Jimmy Paredes phenomenon. <laughs> um, so far, I think um, we are looking at an unfortunate cluster of injuries. And so when you have a cluster of injuries like that, it's very easy to jump to a place in your head where those injuries can't be recovered from, and it also feels like they're going to continue to recur. However, I think if you look at things a little bit more practically, the injuries that we have suffered, while difficult, are not decimating injuries. Um, There's nothing on the order of Manny Machado's knees going out again. Or Bundy's arm. Or, or Bundy having another Tommy John, or, I mean, heaven forbid, Adam Jones ever got injured. Yeah, well, uh, that's, that's not something I want to consider. Someone who is so actually irreplaceable. Yeah. Um, so while the cluster of injuries, I think, is troubling, the reality of the situation is that this team is built for depth offensively. And as long as we don't sustain really, really... Uh, significant setbacks to our pitching staff, I don't actually think that the... I think the injuries are all bark and no bite. And even if you look at the pitching staff, were Bud Norris to be injured, I would actually be... I wouldn't be, you know, happy for Bud Norris on a personal level. For the team, I'd much rather be have Kevin Gosman going out there every fifth day than Bud Norris the way he's been pitching this year. Yeah. So I think we we have some some failover built in because of the organizational philosophy that Dan Duquette has brought to bear and Buck Showalter, who should be given credit as well. So it, I think it seems worse than it actually is. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, I, I also was going to give it a bark is worse than its bite sort of ranking. Um, I was going to give it one Earl Weaver dust up, um, <laughs> which is again to say a lot of show and not a whole lot there. Um, not to say that there's not a whole lot there with, Earl Weaver as a manager. I don't mean to suggest that at all, but I mean to say that a lot of it was um, uh, for the fans and 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 without the expectations of much to come of it. I do think it's problematic that some people who we were hoping would have breakout years are instead going to be um, sort of 
coming back off the injury list. I think actually the injury to Jonathan Scope is a pretty big deal for us, um, and the injury to J.J. Hardy is a pretty big deal for us. Obviously, Hardy has the absence of Hardy has resulted in the what feels like the middle infield not being its usually consistent self and a lot of errors and a lot of uncertainty. And, and a lot of Everett Cabrera being overexposed. <laughs> a lot of Everett Cabrera being overexposed. Um, but actually, I think that J.J. Hardy is a professional, and he's going to come off the DL, and he's going to be fine. I think it's actually more concerning that Scope is going to be spending a lot of time on the shelf because I think he was just sort of kind of... He, he was just sort of coming into relevance, and I think that this is a bad time for that gap to be happening. In the same way, I think it's a bad time for Bundy when he was sort of on his way through just decimating the lower leagues to suddenly have to kind of take a big pause and, and go back to that. So I don't think it's that big a deal for the 2015 season. I think you're right. I think we have organizational depth and we can work around this stuff. Um but I worry about that more for 2016 and 2017 than I do for right now because I don't think we, anyone was penciling in Jonathan Scope to do anything super exciting this year. We were just penciling it in to see what he could do, you know, like what he was capable of and what his ceiling might be so we knew what we had at second base. Which seems more likely to you, Carly Fiorina securing the 2016 <laughs> nomination on the Republican ticket for president or Steve Pierce successfully turning a double play as a second major league second baseman. <laughs> Steve Pierce, but it's closer than any of us is comfortable with. <laughs> that's about that's about where I come down to. Item number three on the Ryan Webb franchise report, ladies and gentlemen, our recently concluded series, or should I say our recently concluded home series in Tampa Bay. That's right. As you all know, the Orioles were the home team at Tropicana Field for the three games played there over the weekend due to the series of unfortunate events in our fair city of Baltimore. I always feel a little weird when I when I claim Baltimore as our city since we're broadcasting from Brooklyn, but I'm okay with it. Okay. <laughs> All right. As long as long as you're okay with it. Yeah. You'll you'll provide us cover. <laughs> yeah. 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 For the hail of angry tweets that we may get as a result of that statement, at tweet B at morons. us <laughs> at B Morons on Twitter. Tropicana Field became our home away from home for that series and I think it's fair to say that the Tampa Bay Rays organization and the city of Tampa Bay in general did a really amazing job of making the Orioles feel at home. I'm gonna give this. I'm gonna give this the first uh, unadulterated, just a home run. Goodbye, home run that we've given out in a while on the franchise report. It has been. There's been. <laughs> I believe the technical term is a dearth of home runs. Uh, our power has been lacking. <laughs> um, I, I was really pleased and sort of impressed and happy with how Tampa did. Um, the Tampa Bay Rays fans who did not, it must be said, turn out particularly to support the Rays um, because they never turn out to support the Rays. Cause it's a terrible place to watch a baseball game. Uh, did also turn out a little bit to support the Orioles. There was a lot of like um, uh, nice signage. And friendly things from the fans. There was some applause. There was a, a smattering of O in the national anthem from Tampa Bay fans, which I thought was a very nice touch. And then the Tampa Bay organization did a lovely job of flying in sort of Orioles uh, home food. There were crab cakes. There was 10 dozen cookies from an, uh, a, a Baltimore bakery. Some nice sort of accoutrement uh, by Tampa to make this very weird and 
probably uncomfortable situation a little bit more uh, sane. And if, in fact, the um, thought is what counts, the thought was clearly there. I'm going to give it uh, one Dylan Thomas because I believe— Do not go gently to that good night. Yes. Um Oh, no, 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 wait. I'm going to give it a T.S. Eliot. I'm, okay. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Dylan. <laughs> that is embarrassing. My apologies to you and your estate. Uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, the author of the poem The Wasteland, which, of course, I believe ends, or at least includes the very harrowing lines, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper. However, I think it was actually good that the storyline of the Orioles playing their home games at Tropicana Field in this instance because of the very strange circumstances ended up being more of a whimper than a bang i think it could have been something that turned into way more of a storyline than it ought to have been Mm. um i think an appropriate amount of attention was paid to the orioles white Sox game with no fans because that was a deeply surreal thing and it happened under extreme duress it's debatable whether they should have played the game at all There was the really wonderful aspect of that where so many Orioles fans showed up and stood outside the gates and cheered from afar. There there was a lot there to really chew on. Once the game, once the weekend series home games were moved to Tampa Bay and it was decided that we were just going to flip-flop the order that the teams batted in and pretend that it was Camden Yards, I think everyone across the board from the players to Major League Baseball to the Masson Broadcasting Team, to the Tampa Bay Rays organization, did a really wonderful job of treating it as business as usual otherwise, except for the nice little touches that you specified, Um, and made it a thing where it was about getting back to baseball under slightly different circumstances as a nod to the gravity of the situation back home, but without blowing things even more out of proportion than they already had been. And really, I think, showing the appropriate amount of deference to the fact that what was going on back in Baltimore was much more serious than whatever interesting logistical quirks were involved with this game. So I thought, actually, from a baseball standpoint and from a PR standpoint, the whole thing couldn't have been handled better. Yeah, and I I would also like to say that, like, Yes, there have always been a few grumps on Twitter and on talk radio and in in the world who still feel aggrieved that their baseball was must and are upset that, you know, the home tickets that they had for the White Sox series or the Rays series had to be moved or this, that, and the other um, blew up their spot a little bit. I think that overall those people have been a massive minority of fans and overall i think that when they have sort of spoken up people not particularly rudely even have just said come on this that's not that's not what's important here um and those voices have not been particularly a big part of of this experience and we should acknowledge that a leading voices with that message have been Buck Walter, Adam Jones. Absolutely. Jim Hunter, Jim Hunter. Of all people. Jim Palmer. That is actually what I meant, Jim Palmer. Um, but uh, that was not the case in St. Louis. Correct. That is not the case uh, in the Ferguson riots and the sort of ongoing relationship that the Cardinals have with that. Now, again, it isn't the same. You know, the, the Baltimore stuff was happening 
blocks away from Camden Yards, and Ferguson, Missouri is not as close to St. Louis as as that. Um, but it is not a foregone conclusion that baseball stands up and does the right thing. <laughs> no, it and is not. In fact, you know the the I think that the Cardinals organization um, has a black eye that I haven't really forgiven them for for their complete lack and in fact like handling very poorly when fans made some pretty inappropriate statements around baseball being more important than black lives and like that uh, I, I just I just want to acknowledge that it is not a foregone conclusion that people treat this with sort of like you're saying the like baseball is important there's another thing going on here we're going to be able to talk about both without sort of spinning off the rails and having a, a, a meltdown on air, but we're also going to give it the sort of respect and time that it, it deserves. And I think that the Orioles deserve credit for that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that'll do it for the Ryan Webb Franchise Report. Stay with us as we invite our good friend Sarah Estrella into the studio to talk about uh, a different sort of trouble taking place in the fair city of Pawtucket. Sarah, welcome to Baltimoreans. Thank you. The New York Times article that you posted on Facebook that made me think that you should come talk with us uh, is really about the sort of like the historical ramifications of this storied franchise and its connection to the people of Pawtucket. Did you all feel that at the time? Did you feel like there was history there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There was actually a banner that hung outside of McCoy Stadium uh, advertising the fact that the longest baseball game in history occurred there. Oh, wow. um, and it had had like a stretch of like the number of innings, and you just saw a bunch of zero 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 <laughs> until the Paw Sox won, and so kind of like you know advertise that pride. The longest I did not know that. Yeah, see, huh. yeah, see, and go. now many people won't know that because it's going to be torn <laughs> down. Not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that kind of brings us to uh, why we brought you here today, which is that um, it's going to be torn down. Mm-hmm. And so when you think back on all the memories that you had. Uh, you know, thinking about the the heralding of spring and and school field trips and stuff like that. What comes to mind for you when you think about the fact that it's just going to be gone? I really can't imagine my city without it, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. to be honest. Um, it's really probably just going to go into total chaos. Um, it's not a particularly appealing part of the city to begin with. Um, there's a, a truck park parking lot um, across the street from it but then there's also a middle school and high school um, mixed into the same building a lot of low-income housing it's not too far from the center of the city but um, it's not something that we took pride in because of its beauty it was sort of the only place that you could really have some family fun in the city for an affordable price um, where you didn't have to go you didn't have to watch tv to watch the boston red sox some of them would come to you (laughs) so it was it was um a real treat for many people, and we never took it for granted. And is this the last season that it will be open, or have we already? It is already a done deal. The last season will this last happen season. this year. All yeah. Right. So people, people will have the sort of the memorial goodbye. Yeah. Derek Dieter tour, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> re re paw re paw pecked. No, no, yeah. <laughs> absolutely not. Um. You raise a, an interesting thing there, which um, I think is that 
a lot of times professional sports arenas and in particular baseball stadiums are in parts of a city that most folks would not go to otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have to look. Our show is based in New York. We don't have to look any farther than the Yankees to know that. The Yankee Stadium is in the South Bronx, which no person in their right mind would go to. <laughs> Steady. Uh, <laughs> for any reason other than to watch a Yankee game or to volunteer in a very troubled school district. Um, and I think one of the things that's interesting about these situations where stadiums like this get torn down or franchise owners threaten to leave is that all of a sudden it shines a spotlight on the urban environment in which this sport is taking place mm -hmm. and makes us think hopefully a little bit about the lives that are peripherally affected by the presence of this team. Mm -hmm. um, do you anticipate that that's the kind of thing that's going to happen in Pawtucket once, once this demolition occurs? Absolutely. Um, many people would say the same thing about Pawtucket, to be honest. Like it's, it's a mm. place that most people wouldn't go to, um, especially that area. Um, and I don't know, I think it, it kind of humanizes the neighborhood a little bit. Many people wouldn't go to it. And I don't know, when you, when you said that it kind of affects the periphery and, 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 and makes people think about it a little bit more, that is true. But I think having that contact by going to the baseball stadium in the first place is one of the biggest ways that that community sees that, yeah, we're valued, you know, we are a destination ourselves, you know, like we, we, let's, let's put on our best face. And I think, um, not having that around will definitely affect people in a very negative way. They'll see like, you know, people don't care about us. They cared about us so little that they actually took away the only thing that we had. It's yeah. the gem of our city. Um, might not be a very shiny one, but it is. And it's, it's, you know, it matters a lot. I'm reminded hearing you talk about that of when I used to go to games at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore with my family and Memorial Stadium, a lot of people, you know, associate Oriole Park at Camden Yards with the Orioles and rightfully so. It's a beautiful ballpark. It's right in the middle of this kind of glittering part of downtown Baltimore. Re rebuild of Baltimore in some ways. Yeah, it's right on the water. There's all these beautiful restaurants and hotels surrounding it. It's really incredible. Memorial Stadium was... <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't in a particularly terrible neighborhood necessarily, but it was in a sort of middle-class residential area. And I can vividly remember, you know, I came from a relatively upper-middle-class upbringing. We lived in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I hadn't really seen true middle-class kind of row house urban life before. And my first experience of that was going to Orioles games. And my first experience of feeling safe in that environment was basically because even though it felt very different to me from my own background, and I realize this is kind of a weird thing to say, but was by virtue of the fact that there was baseball being played there. And so mm -hmm. I sort of felt like, well, how bad could it really be? And the extension of that train of thought, I think, is... I love baseball. People who live here love baseball. We're not so different. Mm. And that's an incredibly valuable train of thought to be a passenger on, to <laughs> make it <laughs> to really mangle, <laughs> mangle a metaphor. metaphor yeah. Yeah. Um, but I really believe that. You know what I mean? I, I really believe that that was a formative thought process hmm. for me about um, the differences between different socioeconomic uh, strata. I also think it's a really interesting, I mean, maybe this is also a sort of um, Bull Durham romanticization of minor league baseball, but I sort of feel as though there are a lot of cities in this country 
that are not at the the scale or the um, the TV market or whatever you want to say to support a professional sports franchise at the highest level. But one of the things that's always been interesting to me about professional baseball is that there are like many tiers of sports teams. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of in that way kind of like EPL soccer and like everybody has their own local thing. But in soccer, in the Premier League, they have those things because they're anchored there. They couldn't go anywhere else because it's like, you know, it's 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 the it's the sporting club of that space and it can right. never leave. And I think one of the interesting things about the Pawtucket story is how much it mirrors America sort of like giving up on middle class cities <laughs> and sort of being like there are certain cities that have existed for a long time, but I think in Pawtucket's case, you know, factory manufacturing and a couple of other things have left and now there's sort of a general question and correct me if i'm wrong about why are these 75,000 people all in the same space almost mm. like what what what's the why does this city exist if it wasn't for this particular industry right um a lot of people did come because of the factory um and the manufacturing business many people um my mother included my father also when he moved to this country um they worked in jewelry factories and paper manufacturing companies um and those factories have closed down now hmm. have been now turned into artist lofts places that we can't afford sure um and we huh. we've kind of watched them hollow out and then be filled in again by people who just commute from Pawtucket into providence and so oh, really so it's becoming like mm-hmm. a an exurb yeah interesting yeah and it's it's a bit heartbreaking to watch because yeah. Um, you know, my brother said to me just a week ago is like, I want to live in that place. And it was a factory that we never would have gone into when we were kids. But now it's like <laughs> an, this beautiful, beautiful artist love. And yeah, like it, it does a lot of um, really economic good for the city, but it also kind of um, exemplifies the hollowing out. And a lot of people also move to Pawtucket because of the immigrant communities that are there. It's a largely immigrant um, populated city. Uh, many Portuguese people, Cape Verdean people, Dominican, Puerto Rican, you name it, they're there. Hmm. My high school actually had over 60 different languages spoken in it at any given Holy time in the hallway. Um, very, very diverse. Yeah. And, um, 60, wow. Very unassuming, but very powerful <laughs> also. Yeah. So is it too uh, fairy tale of me to suggest that all of those different sort of backgrounds and cultural touchstones were brought together around baseball or is that just me being like a little bit of a Disney princess? I think at the <laughs> elementary school level it was huh? because um, sometimes you'd go and there would be kids from towns that you didn't even hear of until that day from, you know, visiting from all different parts of Massachusetts, sometimes Rhode Island. Um, so you did have that, cult- that encounter in that way. But um, maybe, you know, as you get older, you don't have as much time for a baseball game, but in the summers when you come home from college or when you come when you you know after a long day of work, um, that's that's what you went and did. You went and saw a baseball game. Many people, many of my friends actually had their first job at McCoy Stadium. Oh wow! So it's it's a huge part of our life. <laughs> this is one of the things that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough in baseball when we talk about the pace of game conversation and various other responses to the complaint that quote baseball is slow and boring Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is that one of the reasons i think baseball enjoys such a strong presence in the fabric of people's lives is because it is slow enough that you can have a really rich conversational dynamic with Mm -hmm. somebody over the course of a baseball game and that's not just between innings while the pitchers are warming up that's during the game Mm -hmm. there are 
you know, I think we can all admit it. There are at bats that aren't very important <laughs> or <laughs> uh, sequences of pitches that where you you can tune out a little bit without uh, losing your presence in the kind of spirit of what's happening athletically, mm-hmm. uh, competitively. Um, but it it make it leaves room for you to also be present in your dynamic with whoever you're at the ball game with, mm-hmm. or um, the the kind of community that exists around the team. Mm-hmm. And when we, I in my opinion, when we with baseball try to um, wash that part out of it and make it more efficient, we lose the part of it that is really special. Not only special but necessary, I think. There aren't many things in this world anymore that that where, where you can just take a step back and realize that yeah, it's still going to continue, but I can I can remove myself from this for just a moment, and it'll it'll still be there when I come back, hmm. um, and th- not too too much will be changed. I like that. I like that. I agree. It, it it's it's part of this trend. I think of everything needs to demand our attention perpetually and constantly, so that. Um, and, and, and that by doing so it is therefore relevant. Mm -hmm. And what I think is interesting about that line of thinking is if you, if you actually apply a sort of litmus test of relevance to that, isn't something more important if you can remove your attention from it and be, and feel a compulsion to return your attention to it after leaving it alone for a little while, as opposed to, for some reason, the example that's coming to my head is Twitter, which is when I'm looking at Twitter and when I'm scrolling through Twitter, it feels like this is the most important, interesting, relevant (laughs) thing that's happening in the world. (laughs) And as soon as I put my phone down, I don't remember a single thing that I've looked at or read. It's gone. It's wiped instantly. And baseball is the complete opposite of that. So do you know what the logic is of the move and where the Red Sox are considering taking the Pawtucket Red Sox? I know that they're looking at Providence. Um, Which and, would continue the exurbation of yeah, the city. And the reason behind the move is because they're, well, they're blaming it on the dropping number of attendance. Hmm. Um, even though I believe it's one of the most highly attended minor league franchises in baseball. So this this points at a kind of interesting thing to me, which is that <laughs> at some point in time on this podcast, whether it's this episode or a different one, we had a conversation with uh, Mina Kimes. Tight. <laughs> this is a tightly run operation. <laughs> <laughs> and she's a, a writer at ESPN, the magazine. And one of the things that she was talking about in that conversation is the differentiation between the idea of a sports team, a professional sports team being mm. anti-consumer versus being anti-fan. And this strikes me, this particular example of the Red Sox citing flagging attendance numbers at their minor league ballpark as uh, a justification for moving the team away. This strikes me as both anti-consumer and anti-fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all at the same time. Because um, you're taking jobs out of the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, taking, um, you're taking away this, this cultural touchstone from a community. And, and also, it strikes me as a little bit flimsy. I, I don't think most major league teams look at their minor league organizations as revenue streams. I think they look at them as ways of cultivating talent to bring up to the major league level to, to create revenue streams. So the idea that, um, that these are suddenly like revenue generators, (laughs) it it just doesn't really ring true. Huh? Mm. That's interesting. And that makes me think of like, I mean the, the, the New York times article, which I guess we should credit in its, complexity which is called a city braces for its ballpark to go the ways the way of its mills and it's by dan barry the 
article does a wonderful job of capturing the kind of spit and bailing wire <laughs> nature of AAA experience, right? You're not you're not there to see uh, glitz and glam and everyone do everything right. You're there just as much for the bloopers and the charm and the kind of the innate industrial poetry of AAA baseball as you are for the particular product that happens to be on the field. Um, and I wonder whether triple a baseball is trying whether it's just the boston organization or whether triple a baseball is trying to make itself into like a real revenue generator all up and down the line and if they are aren't they sort of doomed to failure in that regard <laughs> like i don't think you're ever going to pay a lot of money to go see a triple a baseball team no and i i know for a fact that um <clears throat> you know people from Pawtucket can hold a grudge pretty well <laughs> and when they you take that, away uh, got that Irish Catholic thing happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no really. Uh, when you take away its baseball team, you you know, and also um not only can we hold a grudge very well, but we also don't like to travel for very long um because Rhode Island is so small, <laughs> you can bodies, get through huh? the state. Yeah, no really. You can get through the state in 47 minutes like north to south. <laughs> You're yeah. like I've tried. <laughs> no, no really. And so if we have to go into Providence, it's a huge haul, especially if you have like five kids and you're a single mom and you just want to have a nice day at a baseball field. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. You're not going to bring them to Providence. And then also with the relocation, those ticket prices are going to skyrocket and they're not going to be affordable anymore. You could used to be able to catch a game for $7 and now (laughs) I don't, I can't even imagine what that price is going to be like, especially for, you know, for a family that, that might not be able to afford it otherwise. Is there is there an attempt to uh, prevent McCoy from being knocked down? Or is there organizing people are doing? Or I'm I'm not sure if there's going to be any action taken over the summer. Hmm. I can definitely imagine that there will be um, around the Fourth of July because uh, the the few days leading up to and the day of the Fourth of July, there's a huge fireworks display. Mm-hmm. Everybody camps out, has a picnic around. Um, around the stadium and in the stadium itself if you can't get tickets it's always a sold out game um and you know you watch fireworks with other families that you might not otherwise meet and it i, I can imagine that there will probably be some action around that time if not caused by myself probably by another peer <laughs> <laughs> excellent. excellent excellent well if you're in the Pawtucket area which if you're in the pocket today Pawtucket area and you're listening to this show I'd love to meet you. <laughs> I wonder who you are, sir or madam. <laughs> but if you are, go on out to that game, and if nothing else, pour one out for the tradition that was mm-hmm. at McCoy Stadium. Well, Sarah, thank you very much for uh, for joining us tonight oh, to, to talk about me. this. Thank you. <laughs> Just one more thing for you on the show today, folks. Contributor Matt Freed, speaking of things that will soon be no more, sent us this lovely little essay about the legacy of Cliff Lee for his beloved Philadelphia Phillies. An open letter to Cliff Lee. Dear Cliff, of the few regrets I have in this life, one is never seeing you pitch. God, I had so many chances. You are my favorite Philly, joining the company of Mike Schmidt, John Cruck, Tug McGraw, Shane the Flying Hawaiian Victorino, and Jen Eisenreich. You arrived in Philadelphia in 2009 at the trade deadline, sort of unheralded, considering that Amaro was originally gunning for Roy Halladay, 
Yes, you'd won a Cy Young, but you'd always flown under the radar. And then we saw your first game. (laughs) Holy God, did the Phillies strike gold. Game one of the 2009 World Series, you stared an entitled New York Yankees team in the face and mowed down the entire lineup. Yeah, the Phillies were underdogs, and yeah, we lost the series in six. But you showed that we weren't going down without a fight. Did the Yankees win a World Series by playing through a monsoon the year before? Nope. You took that same fighting spirit to the mound and proceeded to smoke that entire lineup. That's when I knew I wanted you in Philly for the rest of your career. Nothing against Roy Halladay, but the way he finally got to the Phillies never sat right with me. To this day, I don't understand why Amaro still coveted Doc when he could have kept you at a little less the price and not touch the farm system. But also, that's the Cliff Lee story, isn't it? A truly great pitcher who was always seen as more of a trade chip than a centerpiece. You bore all of your career uncertainty with a quiet grace and a plum. You showed up every day to do your job. You never lost focus despite so many setbacks. You are a fighter, Cliff Lee. You embody the spirit of Philadelphia. Always hungry, always scrapping, always deserving more respect and recognition than you got for most of your career. When you get the call, I hope you go into the Hall of Fame as a Philly. Your number should be retired in the Phillies Hall of Fame. There's, there's no argument about that one. Your phone should be ringing off the hook from every pitching prospect looking for a coach. Thank you for the memories, Cliff. Thank you for coming to Philadelphia. Thank you for fighting with a PH. Thank you for never giving up. We're going to miss you. Love, Matt Freed. do it for episode 123 of Baltimoreans. Thank you to our guests, uh, Sarah Estrella and Matthew Freed for their contributions. Yes, indeed. You can find Matt Freed online at I am Matt Freed on the Twitters. Sarah, does Sarah want to be discovered online? I have no idea. Okay. We're going to leave her anonymous for the time being. We'll leave her anonymous, even though we have said her name several times. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we have a correction, uh, and this correction is two episodes late because we were so embarrassed that we couldn't bear ourselves to bring it up. That's it, not true. It just it really felt a little frivolous to bring it up last week in our discussion of the politics of sports and race in urban America. Anyway, Jen Adams, who judged... Our 2014 nickname audit wrote in in response to an incident on our 2015 nickname audit uh, to remind us that Beano, which we claimed was a bean-based product, is not, in fact, a bean-based product. In fact, from the description on their website, Beano contains a natural food enzyme that helps prevent gas before it starts. It works with your body's digestion to break down the complex carbohydrates and gassy foods like fresh vegetables, whole grain breads, and beans, making them more digestible. So is it fair to say that Bud Norris always looks like he could probably use a Beano after having munched a can of beans? I think that's the definition we're going to have to go with should we ever be 
grilled about this issue by a prosecutor. <laughs> okay. Which seems... So we have, we have to get our story straight here. <laughs> it seems unlikely, but we need to be prepared for any eventuality, Smith. True, it's, true. It's 2015. People come at you left, right, and center. <laughs> the music on the show, ladies and gentlemen, our theme song by Marshall York, the song Birdland by Weather Report playing between segments, the song Working for Another Song by the band Town Hall, and, uh, which plays uh, early on in the program, and behind my voice as I speak these very words, kicking my heart around by the black crows, by the, the back crows. Sam. Yes. What would you call Henry Arudia if he was um, perusing through iTunes and happened to, dis- to discover the Baltimoreans podcast in the different uh, uh, offerings on that fair program? I, I don't know. What would you call him? Maybe you'd call him Henry Leva Review Rudia? There it is. The best one yet. Game over. Shut it down. Please do that. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. <laughs>